1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the keynote by CNBC Events. I'm John Fort. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. Today, my conversation was Cynthia Marshall, CEO of the Dallas Mavericks, about how she successfully turned the team's once-toxic culture into a case study of diversity and inclusion. She joined me during the CNBC at work live stream on June 25th, 2020. Take a listen. Cynthia Marshall. Great to see you.
0: It's great to see you too, John. How are you today? I am doing pretty
1: well, Cynthia. I hope you are too. And, you know, we're just talking to Bill McDermott about the the imperative to work on culture during this time. And when I think about organizations that punch above their weight when it comes to culture, boy, uh, teams like the Dallas Mavericks are certainly right in there because, I mean, your brands all over people's backs. People are passionate about the team, whether you're winning or whether you're not. People know the names of your employees (laughs) around the world. How has our current context changed the way you as a CEO think about the future of brands?
0: You know, it's interesting because uh, in the crisis that we're in right now in this pandemic, Uh, What we told our folks early on, you know, after we immediately sent everybody home, made sure they were set up to work, which fortunately we had uh, really put a digital infrastructure in place in the past couple of years. So we were ready uh, to work at home, Uh, made sure everybody knew they were getting paid so they wouldn't worry about having an economic, a personal economic crisis while they were having a health crisis. Uh, Once we did all that, uh, we shifted. And we said, what we are about right now, even though we are not playing the business of basketball, what we want to do is play the game of life with people. It's not on the court right now, but it's all about playing the game of life with people. And so we kicked in big time with our community uh, outreach, uh, with our public service announcements around, you know, being safe and having our players out there, uh, talking about the health crisis. We were there for healthcare workers, uh, to make sure that they could have childcare for their kids. I mean, just a variety of initiatives we put in place to make sure people knew that we don't just work here, we don't just play here, we live here too, and we wanna be a part of the community and a part of the solution. That has worked wonders for a brand that's already solid, already strong, uh, but it's even stronger now because people see us everywhere in a socially distant way, doing all kinds mm-hmm. of great things to help with the health crisis.
1: Now I got to get in the in the way back machine uh, and and talk about when you came in to the Dallas Mavericks, because um, it was a moment of crisis where there were uh, issues of, of sexism and just real workplace issues that you were frankly coming in to fix. So talk to me about what you did on the way in. you know, I, I've been able to look at um, the employee roster that you have. I noticed you got a lot of new people. So uh, <laughs> there's probably some people who, who used to work there who don't work there anymore. What did you do? How did you tackle that problem?
0: Uh, that's right. So one of the first things we did, John, was I came in and said, okay, two things. We need to have a vision that everybody is clear around. And so the vision that we set out is that we would set the NBA standard for diversity and inclusion. We would set a global, global standard. Uh, so we started with that. Uh, we started with a set of values, a set of values that uh, we said would not just be on the walls, but would operate in the halls. Everything we do, every decision we make, all of our hires will be based on a set of values. And those values spell crafts, C-R-A-F-T-S, character, respect, authenticity, fairness, teamwork, and safety. And safety is about physical and emotional safety, especially considering the circumstances uh, that were before me. We made safety uh, a priority, but also including uh, emotional safety. Uh, We said we would have Mm -hmm. a speak-up culture where people could tell us exactly uh, what was on their mind. So I spent the first 90 days of this 100-day plan uh, meeting with all of our employees one-on-one. And yes, we were also executing on an investigation. We were making some leadership changes, but I was also meeting with employees one-on-one, every single employee in the organization, to really get to know them and then to understand kind of their career aspirations and then to understand kind of what kinds of things they wanted to see uh, in the workplace. Uh, we put all that together with our 100-day plan and uh, made some leadership changes, and you're, and you're right. There are some people who don't work there anymore. Uh, I started out with, uh, in my first meeting, uh, with all uh Men, all uh, white men, and a couple of uh, uh, women in there who were not part of the permanent leadership team. And so now my leadership team is our leadership team is 50 percent women and 47 percent uh, people of color. So it was around vision, uh, values, making sure that uh, people understood uh, what inclusion is all about. Uh, our workplace promise is every voice matters and everybody belongs, and that's what uh, mm. we spent a lot of time uh, working on, instilling it in. The culture now
1: it seems to me and correct me if i'm wrong here the equivalent of your board of directors as a ceo is mark cuban the owner of the dallas mavericks so and you're also in this unique position where you, you've been a technologist and technology manager you've been a chief diversity officer and now you're a ceo it, it's a it's a unique path how important was it to have the support of your board uh in this effort and how much conversation did you have to have about um, the either velocity or um, severity, <laughs> in some people's uh, minds, of the changes that you wanted to make?
0: Uh, John, that's a great question. It was extremely important uh, because you know I got the call from work, met Mark Cuban, met with him. He told me what was going on, told, and basically gave me a mandate. And the mandate was to transform the culture. Uh, He had started an independent investigation. Of course, we said we would do our own uh, as well. He had brought in a counselor to help the folks with the emotional issues that were going on at the time. Uh, But short of that, he said he turned it over and said, we need you to uh, help change the culture. We have an issue here. And so I shared with him the 100 day plan. Uh, He approved that plan. And then every step of the way. And we had this we had a joke and it it wasn't really a joke, uh, but I would say, I run it, you you own it, I run it. Um, and obviously he was involved, <laughs> but, but he gave me carte blanche. He said, you know, I know your history, know your background, not sure everything that's going on here because his focus of course was really on the basketball side. I was on the business side. Uh, you bring in who you need to bring in. So I brought some folks in uh, with me who had significant experience in workplace investigations, human resources, our uh, business operations. And he gave me the freedom uh, to make the personnel changes I needed to make, to put in the type of infrastructure we needed, uh, to uh, look at salaries. I mean, literally, he let me do what I felt needed to be done uh, to make us a world-class uh, organization. And so it's extremely important to have his support. He could have uh, stopped me or got wind of something every step of the way and said no, and that never happened. And he was always there, and he still is. Whenever I call and need something, because keep in mind, I didn't know the business of basketball. I didn't know the business of basketball. Uh, So I needed also some uh, some insight there. So we're a good team. I think we're a good team. (laughs) Okay, you're also in a unique position to talk about
1: what it takes to be an effective or have an effective chief diversity officer. Um, Because you were a chief diversity officer. Now you run the thing. Um, So uh, tell us. What is the difference, the key difference between an ineffective uh, position and an effective position? And how does a company plan or an organization plan to make sure that that position and the person in that position is as effective as possible?
0: I think one of the things that worked in my favor is that I worked for AT&T for 36 years and I ran large businesses for at and I ran States a state for AT&T, I worked all over our business, technology, staff, line, you name it. So I had a variety of experiences and my very last job at AT AT&T was the Senior Vice President of Human Resources and the Chief Diversity Officer. So I think having all that business experience and having leadership experience and leading large teams was very helpful for me as a Chief Diversity Officer, really understanding the business but also understanding what it takes to really drive a cultural change, how to really get employees engaged, how to assess uh, your workplace uh, culture, how to get people excited about change, even people who normally don't like change. So I think to be very Mm -hmm. effective, you have to have a plan. Tell me more about why that specific background was so important,
1: because there's there's a lot of uh, assumptions I could make about that, but was it about when you needed to make the ask to senior leaders to make changes? Was it about your your credibility within the organization because of what you had worked on in the past? Was it about knowing the culture of at and and which levers you had to pull to really get things done or all of that? What What was the key to, to having the background and, and the knowledge that you did?
0: John, it was all of that. And I think when you look at our 100 day plan, Uh, Some people think it was just about going in and uh, making a few moves and dealing with uh, the investigation and asking some people to leave. But our plan uh, was about uh, putting in a complaint process and a hotline and all that uh, so that we can model zero tolerance and to show people that we meant business about living up to our values. It was about putting a women's agenda in place and understanding what that meant, meant to empower encourage and elevate women and how you uh, drive those kind of changes to the point where everybody, including the men, uh, will embrace having women in leadership and sponsorship program, mentorship programs, et cetera. It was also about really uh, looking at operational effectiveness. I mean, I have, uh, yes, I had to deal with uh, the initial issues, but I have a business to run, uh, P&L responsibilities. uh, and, And fortunately, I know how to do that. So the things that you need to do to look at how you pay your people, uh, market-based compensation. Mm -hmm. We spent a lot of time uh, looking at that, Uh, looking at staffing, uh, talent management, looking at what it takes to actually assess our fan base and what are we going to do around marketing, Uh, looking at the sponsorship aspect of it. How do we create partnerships? And then looking into the future. Fortunately, I had a technology background. I have a technology background. So understanding how technology can drive our work practices and how we uh, put our product out there to the fans. So you need to know all of that uh, to run a basketball team. And so <laughs> fortunately, it, it fortunately yeah. it worked for me.
1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McKrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy
0: gem of a detour.
1: I want to talk about technology, but first I got one last uh, question about culture, and that is to what degree you, uh, as an executive, whether you're an HR, CEO, whatever, have to be careful, cautious, couch things, um, because in, in my experience, when you start talking a lot about diversity, straight white men in particular can get, you know, feel a little, okay, we're talking about everybody but me, and I don't have a voice in this process. How much do you have to think about that to lead effectively,
0: what do you do about it? Or am I off base? Is that just people I know, people I talk to? You are not off base. It it is so critical. In fact, recently I had, uh, we're having these coffee with Scent sessions, uh, and I had one with all the men in my organization. And we have our employee resource groups, our affinity groups in place, And I asked them, I said, if you are a 40 year old white man here at the Dallas Mavs, uh, is there an affinity group for you? How do you feel about that? Do you need one? How do you feel about all of this that's going on? And we had a really good discussion about that. One of the things I think you have to do, you have to start with what is the business case? There is a true business case for diversity. It's not that this is just a good thing to do. It's not just a moral imperative. There's a business case that says when you have a diverse group of people around the table and an inclusive culture, your financials are better, your employee engagement scores are higher, your customer satisfaction scores are higher, your productivity is better. I And so what I did with my team, I took them through the business case. I went deep on all the research, all the studies, and then people get it because people come to work to be successful. Business leaders wanna be successful. It's about the bottom line. Once you lay out the business case, then you have to start to educate and then engage people so that they can see how they can benefit from a diverse group of people, from a diverse group of suppliers, a diverse uh, philanthropic program. And so we laid out the business case for all of that and people embraced it. So
1: did they get an affinity group? I mean, what do you do? Because that's kind of like. That's kind of a maybe an odd ERG to have, the, the 40-year-old white man ERG, even though there are a lot of basketball fans who fall into that
0: category. So so is it, no, is it based on activity? How do you, how do you, how do you help yeah. everybody feel like they fit in? And let me tell you why I picked that one, because we started out and said, okay, we're going to have four employer resource groups. And we let the employees decide what groups we're going to have. And I come from a place where we had about 10. And so we started off, the Black Employee Network was already in place, so we strengthened that. Uh, we created the Women of the Mavs, so Women of the Mavs Empowering Network, so women. Uh, they wanted a parents at work group uh, because we have a lot of uh, uh, parents uh, of younger children. And then they wanted one, if you're a new hire or kind of the young employee network. And so that's where they wanted to start. And it just hit me as we're having conversations and you know working remotely and all that, and really you know enhancing our diversity and inclusion strategy is it time now for more ERGs? And we said we'd probably end up with about eight. Is it time to add more? And so I just put it to the men directly. I said, let me tell you a group that I think uh, maybe we're missing. And so is it time to add one that uh, you can fall in? Here was the beautiful response. They said, no, we are allies. Many of us are already in the other ERGs and we're all working together. And so we don't feel a need uh, for anything. We don't feel left out. That actually made me feel great uh, because inclusion is something we focus on a lot. And I've said it before that there is a difference. Diversity is about the mix. It's about the makeup, what people look like, and some diversity you can't see. But for the most part, it's about the mix of people. Inclusion is about what you do with that mix. Do you make people feel Mm. like they belong? Uh, Is there a sense of belonging? And so we have focused on both. And I've always described it as diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance. You can have me sit at the table, you can invite me to the party, <laughs> but if I'm on the sideline, then what good is it? And what our what yeah. the fellas told me is that they feel like they are dancing. They are right here in there with everybody else. And that's what we've been trying to create.
1: Well, that's that's where the rubber meets the road is, is if you had a good time dancing at the dance. So uh, that, I, I love that metaphor. Let's talk about the technology. F- five years ago, I would have never thought that we'd be talking about even a time period in sports where uh, players are playing to to empty arenas or um, a a time period where we're talking about streaming rights for platforms, maybe competing with the traditional means for for showing programming. As a leader and a technologist, what are the things that you're doing with the Mavs now to prepare for whatever you expect this to develop into five years from now?
0: Uh, And I will tell you, John, you know, we're in this pandemic, and so it's making us think very differently because right now, of course, we will not have fans in our arena. I mean, we're going to resume our NBA season, hopefully, at the end of uh, July, and everybody will be in Orlando. So uh, right now, we don't have fans in the arena. And so what we are working on right now, we're working on uh, contactless entry points. We're working on paperless ticketing, uh, which we've made some progress on that already, Uh, digital currency. Uh, because even though it's in response to what's happening right now, uh, we think that is the future. And we were already looking at uh, mm. some of that, how to create uh, even a, uh, a virtual experience, a better virtual experience in the arena and also at home. Consumption is going to be different. People uh, watch our games, they experience our games from different devices uh, in very new ways. And those ne- ways will change over the next five years. So how do you meet the consumer where they are? How do we meet our fans? And our fans are different. I mean, they're they're getting uh, younger, they're getting more diverse, uh, more international. How do we meet them? So that's what we're working on, uh, the types of things that uh, this up and coming generation uh, would like to see. And so we have an advisory council, we're putting together kind of a junior advisory council to get even more insight as to what do we need to do in the future. And we have the technology to do it.
1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mc Crispy, so go ahead and
0: hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
1: As you look at what the NBA is having to deal with during the pandemic, um, the plan for Orlando and playing games there. Are there shifts that you have to make? Do, does, do you see the headlines about upticks in cases and think, well, we need to do something differently. Maybe we need to lobby the NBA to, to do things differently. How, how does that uh, work from, from your seat and, and your role?
0: I will tell you, uh, Commissioner Adam Silver and his team and all of the uh, franchise uh, owners, they have been, all of us, have been very focused on the health and safety of our players and our fans. That's number one, and so I was on a call last week where all of that is being monitored on a daily basis. I mean, we're we're making very smart decisions. The league is making very smart decisions uh, based on the data. And uh, one of the reasons uh, we're we're not playing right now is because Commissioner uh, Silver and others said from the beginning it's about the data and not the date. If the data suggests it's not safe, we're not playing. And so right now, that's what we're looking at. Uh, And so I feel really good about um, the fact that when when we start to play uh, at the end of the month, that we will be playing because it is safe uh, to be there. And so I I feel great about all that. Well, we have to figure out, those of us who will be in our local markets, is how do we engage our fans? How do we engage our fans in a way that's uh, safe? How do we engage our fans in a way that will make them want to view Uh, our game. So this is really going to be a test for us. You talked about what's coming in the future. Uh, In terms of viewership, we have an opportunity right now, right now to figure out how to engage more fans than ever when our team is in Orlando and we are here in Dallas with our fans. So I'm actually really excited about it. I don't know. We don't have all the answers. In fact, I was with our, our, our chief marketing officer on the phone for two hours last night. And so we have all these ideas that I can't tell you about. Maybe I'll come back and talk to you about them. You uh, could see It's going to be well, I could, okay, but we gotta, we gotta we gotta narrow our little list of 20 down to just a right. couple that we're going to uh, we're going to try. And so we don't know yeah. if we're gonna try to, at least for right now, we decided we're not going to try to bring any people together because the cases are going up in Texas. Uh, We were hoping we'd be able to take some big venues, practice social distancing like we did with our Courageous Conversations. Uh, But now it's going to be virtual, at least for right now. So we're just trying to figure out what does uh, that look like? How can we engage fans? Or Is there a way to play some games, do some different things to make them want to watch? So all kind of ideas out there. Okay, give me an idea. You, You could have the players play horse against each other,
1: but virtually, Right. So you can see yeah. where they are on a court, like if they got a court at home or wherever, and their distance properly It's just them out there. But, you know, here's this shot, and then they challenge their teammates to make that same shot, and then everybody gets to watch. I would watch
0: that. Well, the M- yeah, the NBA tried some of that. And you know what we're also doing? I know we're doing it here in Dallas. We normally have, huh. you know, our summer camp. So we have all these, uh, you know, different age groups of kids who come out and they have camps. We are doing our camps virtually right now. And so, so far... It is going over well. We have our coaches online. The kids are online. We're teaching them the drills, the moves, all that. Now, of course, we wouldn't have thought about doing that last year, uh, but we're forced to do it uh, this year, and so we're we're forced to operate in a very different way. And 2K, we have Mavs Gaming, so we have a 2K team. The viewership for 2K has gone up. Now they're on like ESPN2, and uh, they're on Twitch, and the viewership is going up because people want, you know, they want to consume sports and there's a generation that will consume it online all day and so we're tapping so into that does this, differently.
1: does this change the way that you think about and value esports as as a sports executive kind of I mean because it's it's affinity with the brand in a way it's a connection with the players and, and all of that that you don't have to be directly involved in but you can certainly promote uh, th- does esports take on new value uh, based on what we've been through.
0: I think it actually does. Uh, The NBA offered a 2K workshop last week, and I think there were over a million people uh, that joined that workshop, which is just unbelievable. So not only do we have our Mavs gamers, so we have our own gaming team. Earlier this uh, in the spring, we had, when COVID first uh, broke out, we had our actual players, our NBA players, online competing with each other, uh, playing 2K. Uh, So bringing them in on it as well. Uh, So it has really, really picked up because people can engage. It is uh, safe to do, and it's fun, and it's a lot of fun. I have a a weekly call every Wednesday morning with uh, the entire organization. In your previous segment, I heard you talking about communication. So we've taken our communication game to a whole new level. So we're meeting a few times a week, but this particular group is once a week. And so guess who I had as the guest yesterday? Our Mavs gamers. They were actually (laughs) talking about, because people are interested in it now. So we had the coach talking about how he recruited the players. They talked about the draft. We talked about the marketing plan. And we actually have the number one 2K player, Dimes, from two years ago when the season started. So we have the number one draft choice on our team. And so he talked about his experience as a gamer and his experience here at the Mavs. The call, I still had 150 people on the call at the end of the call because they were so engaged in what he was talking about. So it's a, it's a bringing a gaming to life, and we love it. Okay. We have a fabulous gonna, We're We're in fifth place right now.
1: Okay. You're going to start letting people expense game
0: consoles? Has it has it gone that far? Uh, not that far, but it's something we can actually <laughs> think about. We, we are taking very good care of our, pe- our people during this pandemic. I mean, people are still getting paid. Uh, They are extremely productive. In fact, I get concerned sometime about just the long hours that people are working because they are so engaged and, you know, people that can sit and put their sweats on and just work all night. And we're saying, don't do that. Uh, So we're trying to provide ways to make people kind of leave their computers and actually uh, have some downtime. Mental health is a big concern of ours with people being isolated. So we're just trying to do all kinds of things to take care of the whole person uh, but uh, consoles, that might be something. Okay, I'll let you know. We might think about that. <laughs> We're going to more than think about that. We're going to more than think about that because our our guy, Dimes, yesterday challenged everybody to learn 2K and really get into it. So wouldn't that be great okay. if I came right back the next day and said everybody gets a console? OK. Yeah. yeah.
1: That, uh, I like I, I, like thought I was kind of joking around, but you want you're one of the few uh-uh. CEOs like outside of the video gaming business. that could say, hey, this is like a, an office equipment expense for you, that PS4, PS5 or that Xbox. Go
0: ahead. You know, you get your skills up. Don't get whooped. Oh, oh, yes. And then it's a way for us to continue to connect, because in this kind of environment as a leader, I'm always looking for a way for our people to connect to have that contact, to feel a part of something big. I mean, we've had some great community initiatives that we've done and we've done them as a group and not just have our community relations group do it. And people have loved that. This would be another way to not just learn gaming and understand kind of the world of some of our employees. This would be a way for us to really connect and have some competition going and, okay, I love this, John, you just gave me something. That was Cynthia Marshall,
1: Dallas Mavericks CEO, speaking at our CNBC at work live stream on June 25th, 2020. You can watch this interview and find much more content about the current state and the future of the workplace on our website, cnbc.com forward slash work. The keynote is produced by the CNBC events team. For more information on our upcoming events and how you can join us, check out cnbcevents.com. I'm John Fort. Thanks for listening.